0: Hallelujah, Father, we look forward to the day when every last vestige of the sinfulness of our life, our hearts, and even the brokenness of this world is a faint distant memory that gives way, Lord, instead to redeemed new heavens and new earth. And when we look upon ourselves in the mirror, so to speak, we see the robes of Christ's righteousness draped across us, ensuring our justification. We thank you, Lord, that we will join in unison with one voice and one accord on that great day with all the saints of old and all the saints yet to be called in to the storehouses of glory as the reaping sickle of the gospel goes forth for the great harvest from all the nations. We will join together singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain, who was killed for our sins and rose from the dead victorious over the last enemy and ever lives to intercede for his people and rules and reigns over all things for all time, forevermore at the right hand of the Father. This Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, we exalt and glorify this day. As we have sung his praises in these songs, may our hearts and our minds be attentive to his proclamation from his word this day. And may the preaching of the same encourage our souls to stand strong in the day of adversity, whether it be internal or external, the trials that we go through, Lord, in our personal lives, as well as the environment you place us in, your word we recognize and proclaim is sufficient to prepare and equip us to proclaim the glories of our Messiah in spite of these. Thank you for this opportunity we have. Finally, we pray if there are any lost in the hearing of this message, that the truth of Christ alone, as the salvation from sin, would strike the hearts of the unbeliever that they might turn, confess their transgressions against your holy law and find in Christ the perfect Savior, washing away their sins, at the cost of his blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. What a great blessing and privilege it is to open the scriptures together to consider God's word. Turn with me as you're able to Genesis 46. As the chapter of Jacob's another chapter of Jacob's life unfolds. The text is focused on Joseph for some time, but now we see Jacob again leading his family to Egypt, or we see Jacob again, and something new has happened. He's making an exile or exodus to Egypt to be spared from famine and to be guided uh, on the way by the wagons, or provided on the way by the wagons and provisions that Joseph and Pharaoh have sent him. And he has his entire family now with him, 70-some people we come to find. And he's taking refuge in this foreign land. Well, travel plans and relocations were not as easy back then as they are now. And I mean, most of us would have a severe anxiety at the thought of packing up everything, filling those U-Hauls and moving to another state, let alone another country. A foreign culture, new language, different area, so many unknowns. How would we do such a thing? Well, we tremble at the thought today, well, imagine how much more difficult it would have been at the time, especially with Jacob's uh, years to account for. He's 130 years old, and you have to move whole uh, flocks and herds and everything else with uh, inferior technology compared to today and so forth. So that's just a bit of the context. There is a, an important stopping point on the way that our text records today called Beersheba. And here I have found a title from a previous reference Back 200 years earlier in Abraham's experience, this was a place where he planted a tamarisk tree. So I've titled this sermon, Under the Tamarisk Tree, because here again, two generations later, Jacob uh, finds the Lord, meeting him at a place of uncertainty to grant him assurance and to reaffirm the covenant to his soul. The aim of this morning's message is therefore to proclaim the promises and faithfulness of God unto his covenant people. Jacob was a covenant son, and you and I are as well if you are in Jesus Christ. We are heirs of Abraham grafted in as Gentiles by the adoption of Jesus Christ. So Jacob's story is part of our legacy. Would you stand as you're able for the reading of God's word today? Let us consider the scriptures and their authority and hear them with reverence as God's word is spoken to us. This is uh, Genesis 46. Consider now verses 1 through 7. Here is the word of God. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes." Verse 5, then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons, and Pharaoh that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Turn with me to another passage, Genesis 21. We get a bit of history of this place, Beersheba. It's first appearance in the text. Jacob's grandfather visits here as well. In Genesis 21, 33, I'll begin with one verse. We'll pick up on the rest of the story in a bit. Abraham planted a tamarisk, tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. Title explained. First mention of Beersheba in the scriptures involves Abraham and a covenant established with a neighboring king. His name was Abimelech. There was some conflict between these two peoples. It was resolved by way of covenant. Abraham commemorates this event, planting a tamarisk tree as a memorial. Reminder, presumably for himself and future generations, Who will appreciate all the more in its growing shade this reminder that God is faithful to his covenant and this location should remind us of this proof when he gave us peace with the neighboring tribe. We might imagine, this is how the movie scene opens in my mind, Jacob is approaching Beersheba on his way to Egypt and now 200 years later, roughly speaking in the text, there's a towering tree he sees in the distance. We don't know this for positive, but it's just something that occurs to me to set the tone or to set the scene for us. The closer he gets, the bigger that tree appears. And he recognizes this, perhaps, as the tamarisk tree that his father, grandfather, has planted so many years ago. And so as we see this scene in our mind, it make sense to us that Jacob, with that memory, would then pause to offer sacrifices of remembrance and worship in the shadow, as we imagine in this scene of this great colossal tree. A little review and overview for you. With the patriarchal blessing and calling of Jacob. The text has focused on him in Genesis 27 and then kind of all the way through the record has focused on this patriarch Jacob or also called Israel in the text virtually exclusively all the way to chapter 35. Here the narrative has shifted 36 covers Esau for a bit then 37 7 picks up on the account of Joseph, Jacob's son. So Joseph has been the focus of the story. He's been the main character for chapters 37 through 41. Joseph had journeyed, having been sold into slavery, of course, to Egypt, but God had a purpose in this. And Joseph's calling of messianic ascension as we've identified it went all the way from imprisonment to second in command of the entire realm of Egypt and the known world he had influence in that his wisdom and plan for famine preparations has spared the world from starvation. And thus, the Joseph's account then turns one more time back to Jacob in our text today. The spotlight of Revelation turns back to Jacob, now 130 years old or so, roughly speaking, briefly in his waning years. And our chapter today, chapter 46, then opens with the Lord speaking once again to the aging patriarch, patriarch father leader, speaking to the aging patriarch in a vision of the night. The Lord reassures him of the promises of covenant revealed so many years ago at places like this to him, to Jacob, to his father, Isaac, and to his grandfather, Abraham, who preceded him. So that's a little review, an overview, the title explained. And now I'll give you a heading. We'll consider three main points today. Jacob's journey to Egypt is highlighted by the following. Number one, location. What can we learn about the significance of Beersheba from the text? Secondly, visitation. The Lord meeting him on the way. And thirdly, direction. This journey and particularly what he's leaving behind, what he's heading toward, are also of importance First of all, Jacob's Egypt journey is highlighted in the text, considering the location, Beersheba. So the Hebrew, beer, means something. Uh, Kids, shout it out if you know it. What does beer mean in Hebrew? I'll give you a hint. Hagar is exiled from the covenant family, and she is met by the Lord as well at a place of significance. Beer laharoi, something of the living God who sees me. Beer means what? Shout it out if you know it, kids. Well, very good. So beer means well. And then the, what follows after it would be the name of the well. So for Hagar, that would be the concubine of Abraham. Uh, back earlier in the text, she takes refuge at Beer Laharoi. Laharoi means the well of the living God who sees me, roughly speaking. The well of the God who visited me in my time of distress. Beersheba means well of the oath or the vows, or oath, vows, or the seven. So where does this name come from? Well, Genesis is written as a text which weaves together, as we've remarked before, numerous details. So to get a picture of the whole, we have to revisit some of these details. And so let's do so by turning back to the first mention of Beersheba, well of the oath or vows, where we pick up on the story of Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 21. Abraham at Beersheba, verse 25. We pick up on the account if I can find my text here. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abraham's servants had seized, uh, excuse me, Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said to him, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard it until today. twenty seven. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewes, ewe lambs, of the flock apart, And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, or well of the oath, well of seven, because they both swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. In verse 33, for which our sermon's named, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is where the place, the location, Beersheba first occurs, beer, well, Sheba, oath, or seven. Abraham at Beersheba, the demeanor of Abraham versus Abimelech has taken a marked shift in the text. When Abraham first enters this region, he's afraid of the king. Once again, he lies about the relationship between him and his wife, Sarah, saying that she's his sister in case the men would force uh, or would kill him to marry her and so forth. But something has happened. Uh, the greater king, at least as far as Abraham's heart and attitude is concerned, is Abimelech. He's a stronger, more influential king when he enters the land. But at this point, there's been a dispute, and now Abimelech comes grovelling to Abraham—a total turning of the tables. Abimelech, the foreign king, recognizes the superiority of Abraham, and that recognition happened at Beer-sheba, uh, this well of oath or seven. Well, what has happened in between? when Abraham first meets the king and now when they make covenant together is the covenant son has been born. God's promise to Abraham to grant him a child in his own age at 100 years old-ish, Isaac has come to pass. You can imagine how that event might have stirred the heart of kings around. A miracle has occurred. This man is blessed of God. He's had a child in his old age. And so now when Abimelech hears that some of his men have commandeered this well. He's sort of shaking in his boots. He gives some deniability. And Abraham says, don't worry about it. I will supply a peace offering and let's make a covenant of peace between you and me. Think about it. The man who is wrong, the covenant son for whom the objection or the crime has come, has offered seven new lambs as a peace offering. Does this remind you of a principle that we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Messiah? The one who is wronged, God who has sinned against himself, offers the peace offering in order to establish the covenant between sinners and himself. Abraham offered that sacrifice from his own holdings and flocks, and one day another covenant son who would arise, Jesus Christ, who would be the sacrifice, who would establish peace between warring factions, us and our sin, and a holy God, the true sovereign. This is what Beersheba stands for. The place where the man wronged offered the sacrifice, the well of the oath, the well of seven. Seven be the number of sufficiency. A sufficient sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice. Lambs were offered to secure peace between two men who were at one time enemies. So this is what Beersheba stands for. What about Beersheba for uh, Jacob's father, Isaac? Well, again, turn with me to chapter 26. Beersheba, this place figures prominently in the text and another well incident is recorded in Genesis 26:23. Here we read, From there he, Isaac, went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Once again, at the well of the oath, we have a significant event occurring. And here, the significance only increases as the Lord, Yahweh himself, appears to Isaac, the son of Abraham, and says, I am with you. This is that Emmanuel promise, that Emmanuel, "Ah, God with us, I am with you, promise to the patriarch, Isaac. He goes further to reiterate that promise that he will become a father of many. And so what does Isaac do? 25, he builds an altar there. So now at Beersheba, we have the tamarisk tree growing taller. This is this next generation, Isaac, as we imagine. And we have added to this location an altar built by Isaac. And Isaac called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. I'm going to stay here a while. And Isaac's servants dug a well. We have a tree, we have an altar, we have a tent and a well. And likely he redug the well that Abraham's servants had dug so long before at Beersheba. Now, 26, when Abimelech, another king named Abimelech, Abimelech, something like Pharaoh, probably the generic king name for a king of the uh, Philistines, he went to him, that is, he went to Isaac from Gerar with Ahuzath, the advisor, and Phicol, another common name for the commander of the army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we see plainly that the Lord is has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Do you see the parallels? Once again, Isaac, the next generation after Abraham, is swearing an oath. He's reaching a point of peace between himself and an enemy king, or one-time enemy king, 29, that you will do us no harm, Just as we have not touched you and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths at the well of the oath, Beersheba. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba, and therefore... The name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So that is the second mention of Beersheba in the text, a place of significance. Abraham received the blessing and favor of the Lord there and made peace with his enemies. So did Isaac. Isaac, likewise, at this same well, this same location, under the tamarisk tree, if you will, sets up an altar and has a feast with a foreign king in peace and provisions are made to live in harmony with his neighbors. He builds an altar, presumably to worship the Lord at this place. He pitches his tent there, and the Lord speaks to him directly and reiterates the covenant promise that God will uh, secure for himself a people from his legacy and lineage. He would be the father of many. So this is the symbolic weight that is building in the text. Can you feel it? Now I, Jacob, not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, third generation, now traveling to the same location on his way to Egypt, no doubt fraught with all kinds of anxiety and uncertainty. A man of 130 years with his entire family and all his flocks in tow is heading to a foreign land. And where does he receive reassurance from the Lord? At the same place his father and grandfather did at Beersheba, at the well of the oath or the seven. In our text today, 46.1, Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. What did he do? Perhaps on the very altar his father had built, he offered sacrifices to the Lord, perhaps under the shade of the very tree that his grandfather had planted 200 years earlier. With these things in mind, the faith of the patriarch is built. And, And to add even more, the Lord visits him there. Beersheba stands for the following at least. In the tree that was planted, international peace through Christ alone, through Yahweh alone, as represented at Beersheba. A worship memorial. Beersheba stands for that as well, inasmuch as an altar to remember the Lord meeting His people there. And just hasten to add, this is kind of like the opposite of Babel. At Babel, man builds, so God visits. At Beersheba, God visits, so man builds. God intervenes, God first. man does not call him down or build his way to him, but rather God in his mercy and grace visits his son and secures for him covenant peace with his enemies and reiterates to him his promise of salvation through his lineage unto the coming of the Messiah. And so in worship, man builds in these cases an altar to the Lord, a memorial of worship. Emmanuel assurance has occurred at this place. Emmanuel, God with us, that principle of I will be with you, was stated to Isaac, and now we see in our text reiterated to, uh, to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. This is a place, Beersheba, of wilderness supply. A well springing forth in the wilderness is a picture in the scriptures of the Lord providing for his people even in times of trial and exile. This was the case with Hagar at Bir Roy. This is the case with Abraham at Beersheba, again with Isaac and Jacob. I will supply in the wilderness of your sin, in the wilderness of your affliction, in the wilderness of a fallen world, in the wilderness of exile. I will be your sufficient source and supply. When Jesus comes and proclaims to the people listening, I am the water of life. And I am the bread of life, in as many words or terms, in the parables, and at the woman, as he proclaims the gospel to the woman at the well. How would you like to have living water? How would you like to have a well of supply in the wilderness that if you drink from this, you will never die? This is a fulfillment of Beersheba, Beer Laha Roy. This is a fulfillment of the texts of old that proclaimed in this symbolic form that God will supply a never ending source of eternal life through his covenant son. And when Jesus says, I am he, those whose eyes were opened to connect the dots, recognize that the wells of old only held out symbolic hope. But that was fulfilled when Christ, the bread and the water of life, began to proclaim that in me you can have sufficient eternal life. So uh, Beersheba stands for these things. Divine revelation. The Lord visited uh, his servants at this place. And this was marked by sacrifices, worship. To the Lord as a result. Think about this as you consider what might tempt you to be anxious in your own life. The scriptural antidote for anxious uncertainty about the future is the reassuring record of God's faithfulness through covenant history. The scriptural antidote what does repentance from the sin of anxiety look like? It looks like worshiping the Lord, recognizing what He has done. Now, when we think about this and are convicted on the same in our own lives, often we limit our meditations on what God has done for us personally. And that's good and awesome as far as it goes. But I'm telling you, there are places to visit far outside your experience where the proof of God's faithfulness to you is evident. You can go back to the shade of the tamarisk tree as you read these passages in Scripture. You, as you think about your legacy... Those who preceded you in the faith all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can read these passages and know for certain that there is no ground for anxiety for the soul whose life is assured in Jesus Christ. If God can provide a well of provision in the wilderness for the exiled concubine uh, in in the life of Hagar, if he can supply the reassurance by divine visitation to Abraham and to Isaac at Beersheba, then God in Jesus Christ And your relationship with Him is a sufficient well to carry you through whatever might be the challenging trial that you face right now. Anxiety is so sinful because it is an implicit denial of God's track record, His testimony, and His faithfulness. Anxiety, fear, uncertainty of our own future denies what God has done, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of those who preceded us. So when we are tempted to fear the future, not trusting that God and his word is sufficient to carry us through, that uncertainty moves us to cry out in anguish in our souls. We ought to return to these same places, so to speak, in the wilderness of our own affliction. Consider God's faithfulness to your ancestors, your spiritual ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This area, Beersheba, has even future significance. It's the southernmost portion of the promised land. It became an idiom in Hebrew to describe the promised land from Beersheba to Dan, or from Dan to Beersheba, the furthest northern point to the furthest south. Beersheba became the inheritance of Judah. When the land was allotted 400 years later to the Israelites returning to this place, this region surrounding Beersheba was given to the tribe of Judah as his inheritance. And from that same place, from Beersheba, that region surrounding it, the son of God would be born of a virgin Mary. The fulfillment of the promise, ages past, the assurance of a well in the wilderness, of God providing for his people in times of affliction, securing their future by a sovereign, miraculous promises of of laying out his path and his will before them would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ and he would one day meet the woman at the well at this very same region and proclaim that he has come. So Jacob's journey to Egypt is highlighted by the significance of the location, Beersheba. Secondly, visitation. Notice how the Lord visits him on the way. This aging man carried in a wagon under the shade of the tamarisk tree. That night the Lord awakens him with visions. Verse 2, our text. The Lord spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Family worship last night. I asked the kids, what did this passage remind you of? And Vera thought of one I hadn't thought of, which was Samuel. In the night, the Lord called Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And under the instruction of his uh, priestly master, said, here am I. There's another incident in scripture, however, that we are reminded of, and, how the Lord's, and this would be how the Lord spoke to Jacob in the past. In chapter 28, for instance, a vision of the night, and the Lord opens up the windows of revelation to Jacob, and Jacob sees heaven's staircase touching earth. The Lord says to Jacob in that moment and in this moment, similar language, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make of you I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you and I will be with you. I will and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. These visions or dreams in the night were God's way of revealing himself, divine revelation. It's recorded for us by Moses and his pen in scripture so that we can visit revisit this revelation as we read the word of God. But this is the way that God had revealed himself to Jacob and to his son Joseph, even to Pharaoh, and even another Joseph to come. Joseph to come, the husband of Mary, would receive a dream, a night vision. And what would the angel tell him? It's safe, or flee with your wife and your son, Jesus Christ, to Egypt to be safe from the tyranny of the Pharaoh. It's interesting to see these threads of how God provides for His people in sovereign and powerful ways, preserving the line of the Messiah all the way through until Jesus Christ goes to Calvary and pays for our sins and then rises again, assuring us that He has declared victory. Jacob's dream in chapter 28 comes to mind, verse 10. He left where? Beersheba, and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of that place Kids, what did he do with that stone? Jacob took this stone and he used it as a a pillow. And he falls down to sleep. Later on, that stone would serve another purpose. It says he dreamed, verse 12, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to? And behold, what were ascending and descending upon it, kids? angels. And the Lord stood above it, Yahweh, and said, I am the God, the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you. He's left Beersheba, he's traveling, and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north, and the south, as we parenthetically remark from Dan to Beersheba. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, listen, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is none other than the house of God. And he named that place Bethel accordingly. And kids, what did he take that stone? What did he do with the stone next? He set it up as a, an altar or a pillar, and then he poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. The visitation of Jacob at this point probably marks when he came to faith. He was quite the wicked man, the shyster, the deceiver. He had made his brother really angry by tricking him out of the birthright. Now he's running away. The anger of his murderous brother stewing behind him, just a jar of oil to his name, exile and exodus. He's escaping for his life. And here, just after leaving Beersheba, the Lord meets him on a way in a vision of the night hour and says, I will be with you. I have plans for you and you shall become a great nation in so many words. And this land shall be yours and your children's children and so forth. This means of revelation, this visitation in the night was God reminding Jacob in this text and in our text that he is sovereign and he is in charge, no matter where life and circumstances may find him. You can always, at any time, whether you have, are running away from the consequences of your sin or at 130 years, tired and discouraged, you can find assurance of God's faithfulness in his holy word. And so the Lord spoke in this way to Jacob. Notice the promises he gave him. We're according to the patriarchal covenant, that is God's promises, relationship, the terms of His agreement with that, those who He called and preceded, him, and preceded Him. Abraham is the first among the nations after Babel in Genesis 12 to be called out. In Genesis 12, Abraham is called to journey as well, to a place that the Lord says He will show to him on the way. But He promises in verses 1 through 9 to make of Him a great nation. This reference is hard for Abraham to believe often because he's an aging man and has no children. He does not have a son biologically to boast of the wife Sarah, the beloved bride, until he's 9900 years old. And finally, this uh, this promise of children is realized but just one little guy. And that's all he has to boast for the great nation that God had promised. Well, after him comes Isaac. Isaac doesn't have a very big family either. He has Jacob and Esau. There's strife between them. Jacob's calling happens in the midst of this conflict. And then he begins to travel as well. And as the Lord meets him in 28, as we just read, that patriarchal promise is reiterated. I will make of you a great nation. And through the course of covenant history, this has been echoed time and again. Chapter 17, 1 through 8, as the covenant is ratified to Abraham, again, I will make you the father of many nations you will possess the gates of your enemies, 18, 18. Abraham is called to sacrifice his son at one point. God spares him by supplying a ram in the bush. Chapter 22, God reiterates once again, I will make of you a great nation. In chapter 35, again, God has spoken to Isaac or to Jacob in this passage over and over again. But there have been hundreds of years that have passed that many will come from you and I will make of you a great nation. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Paddan Aram and blessed him. This is 35, 9. The Lord said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and the Lord said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And the Lord went up for him in that place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place and where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. There's multiple pillars of remembrance that Jacob sets up to commemorate God intervening at these times of visitation. In chapter 28 at Bethel, he sets up that pillar and pours out the last of his oil. No doubt, the only thing of worth and value as he went on the way, he pours it out as a sacrifice and then commits to living a life of worship to the Lord. Here again in 35, Jacob receives a visitation from the Lord and he pours out a sacrifice and stands up a pillar. Later on, he would do so again at the death of Rachel. And as the Lord visits him uh, along the way, uh, in the course of life, Jacob will set up yet another pillar. And as we see these moments compiling, we find in this a pattern of the Lord visiting his servant and reassuring him of his covenant. But perhaps the most important through line through all of this is not just the patriarchal promise that you will become a great nation, but it's that personal guarantee that the Lord will be with you, that Emmanuel principle I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you up again. Kids, what does Emmanuel mean? It's a name for Jesus. It means God. What does Emmanuel mean? God what? With us. God with us. That name for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is a fulfillment of the manual promise of old. How is it that God can be with us, never leave us, and never forsake us? How is it that God can be our friend and encourage us and equip us and speak to us personally? It's only when our sins have been atoned for. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice, is the atoning uh, price in order for the Emmanuel principle, I will never leave you and forsake you to be ours. Therefore, Jesus is called, in fact, Emmanuel. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will be with you. The Lord had promised Jacob, I will bring you up again. This is the covenant assurance that is renewed to him, this God with us promise that is relayed multiple times to Jacob through the course of his life. The Lord was with Jacob when he entered the promised land all the way back in chapter 32, Maanaim, which means two camps. The Lord opened Jacob's eyes and he saw the angel armies of the Lord attending him on the way. This gave him great faith. That is, he faced Esau so many years after tricking his brother, that the Lord preserved his life, and so he did. And so, through the course of life, Jacob recognizes this, sets up pillars, recognizing that God is stronger than his enemies. Another pillar is set, his name is confirmed, the covenant is renewed, and God assures him that he is Emmanuel, God with him. And here is the message of Jacob's life God is with his servant, God is with his son. God is with us. God is with his people in spite of famine, sin, age, exile, and even death itself. God with us. Famine, sin, age, exile, and death notwithstanding. If we look at Jacob's life at this time, and he were to make a column of all the hardships he is facing, those are just a few he would no doubt write down. But in the midst of this, the Lord visits him and says, I am with you. What if you were to sit down and write a column of the trials and difficulties that you are facing? If you wrote those all down, could you say with confidence that God is with you in spite of them? Well, if you understand the proclamation and the authority of God's word and his covenant assured through the pages of scripture, you can boldly, confidently, and with growing faith say, God is with me in spite of the trials which I face. As we revisit these encampments, as we revisit these altars, if you will, reading scripture, we can find reassurance in spite of the difficulties that we face in the shade of the tamarisk tree, if you will, as we read of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We as well are Israelites. We are Israelites, and as much as God has grafted us in, as I said before, who is the true Israel according to Paul, in Romans chapter 2, it is those who through covenant with Jesus Christ have been called his people. We are now in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have been adopted and grafted in. And so these promises are ours. We have received Jesus Christ if you know him today. If you've confessed your sins, repented, and turned to him, then God is with you even in your heart, so to speak. God is with you. His spirit indwells you. And so the Emmanuel principle is yours. And so our faith is built as we consider these truths today. Jacob then as leaving Beersheba in verse 5. He sets out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh has sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their goods that they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So we've considered how Jacob's Egypt journey is highlighted by location, by visitation. And now finally, we consider direction. What's the significance of this direction toward Egypt? There are a number of parallels that come to mind. This is an exile of sorts heading into Egypt. The scriptures later say prophetically, out of Egypt I have called my son, Jesus, would head to Egypt as well. So this picture, this motif, as some theologians might say, of exile, and then Exodus, out of exile, unto promised land, is sort of the shape of our own salvation experience. Everyone born in Adam has the blood poisoning of sin that corrupts us and renders us at enmity with the Lord. We're born enemies of a holy God. And thus we are born in exile, so to speak. For generations, children of Jacob, Israelites, would be born in exile until millions of them were awaiting their deliverance. And then when the Messiah figure, the prophet that God arose, not the ultimate one, but the one of whom another prophet would arise after him, Moses became became their leader and began to proclaim the word of God out of exile, exodus, unto the promised land. The people of God were delivered. This is the shape of redemptive history. This is the shape of your own life if you know Jesus Christ. Where at one time you were lost in your transgressions and sins, born in exile. One day you heard a message, perhaps sounding something like this. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of your sins. He's the only one whose blood can atone for them. He's the only one who can supply that substitute sacrifice. The king must sacrifice in the place of his people. At the cost of his own blood, Jesus Christ lays down his life at the well of salvation, at the cross, providing for you reconciliation with the Lord. And then you turn to the Lord. You repent of your sin. You place your faith in Him and you begin to walk on a new journey of exodus, out of sin, out of exile, out of bondage and slavery to to what once condemned you to hell unto the promised land. What is the promised land? It's that glorious reunion. Your relationship with the Lord now through Jesus Christ has been restored. And you have a glorious future promised to you. And it takes faith for that journey because it is fraught with all kinds of trial. But in the end, the Lord rules and reigns over all things, history, and even your life. And in the new heavens and new earth, when you die and step from this veil of tears into glory, you will experience what was prophesied to Jacob in your own life and in your own future. So this is the significance of this direction and kind of the prophetic reality of it realized in Jesus Christ the last time as the scriptures record, Jacob left Beersheba. That was back in 28. And the Lord met him on the way. Now he's sort of retracing his footsteps of chapter 28, which led to God's favor assured at Bethel. And now God's favor has been assured at Beersheba. And he's better prepared in his heart for this difficult journey to Egypt. Thinking back on how Abraham and Isaac had peace with foreign kings at that same location assured. It makes sense, additionally, that Jacob, remembering the legacy of Abraham and Isaac now entering in a foreign land, would also enter a place of provision at Goshen and peace. So, these, this remembrance and this direction and what happens along the way become significant. When Jacob left Beersheba before, it was just him and his jar of oil, and the clothes on his back. And the murderous intentions of his brother Esau behind him. This time, when he leaves Beersheba, who travels with him? Seventy strong. The sons of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jehazel, Gunai, Jazer, is, and the sons of Bilhah, who were, uh, whom Laban gave to Rachel's daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. Uh, verses 8 through 23 record name after name after name. 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who had come into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons. Wives were 66 persons in all. And all and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Well, this nation is beginning to grow. For many years, it had been taken in faith. But now 70 are traveling with Jacob to this uh, land of provision, of temporal provision. The Lord is fulfilling his promise. He's traveling with descendants as he leaves Beersheba. This genealogy and lineage is a matter of historical record of God's faithfulness to the promises of old, to Abraham and Isaac. I will multiply your seed, your children, your legacy, and you will become a great nation. The fulfillment of this promise that was anticipated by faith is now coming true in the experience of God's people and will multiply greater still. In fact, the refuge of the land of Goshen becomes the fertile soil from which a nation of millions will arise in just four centuries. So the direction of God's purposes is being fulfilled along the way. For Jacob, if he knew all this at the time, it would blow his mind. Joseph, same deal. He has no idea of God's big picture. He begins to see more glimpses along the way. But the question for you and for them in whatever situation we face, in our limited uh, perspective, in the finitude of our mere humanity is can we trust the God who is big enough to know the end from the beginning and to organize all things according to His purpose and plan, to work them all together for the good of those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. This we call God's providence, His control over every detail of history, ordering it in such a way as when we're able to step, back with the perspective of history and the overview from heaven's perspective, we see that he accomplished miracles beyond our imagination. This is the lesson, exile and exodus. I will bring you up again, the Lord promises him, even though the hand of Joseph will close your eyes. How can these two be reconciled? Let's close with this. Along the way, God says to, jo- to Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Imagine someone is, has died. They've exhaled their last breath. You're clinging to them. You're able to be with them in their passing. It's a beloved, aging, loved one, family member, perhaps father. In Joseph's case, Jacob dies. You have this body laid before him, 145-year-old man, I think, as I recall. And Joseph reaches his hands and lovingly and carefully closes the eyes of his father Jacob is dead. This happens in Egypt. And this leaves a question in the text. I will bring you up on the land of Egypt and Joseph will close your eyes when you're there. How can these be reconciled? Is this a contradiction? Well, in the large scope of things we find it is not. Listen to Hebrews 11:22. By faith Joseph at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. A couple weeks ago, I was asked, there was a sudden death um, of a couple and their family were doing some work for, and they said, you know, what is your church's policy on cremation? Uh, What an interesting question, right? Have you ever considered that? Perhaps you know my answer. We've talked about it in the past. It's been some time, though. And what I prefer is a Christian burial that acknowledges God's intentions for our bones. What what do the scriptures say is the destiny of our physical body? We will be resurrected just like Jesus Christ one day. One day the bones that are rotting in the graveyards around this region, among them there are those who committed their life to Jesus Christ. And on that final day their bones will arise and reassemble. God will assemble however He does it, somehow mysteriously, a continuity between their physical form now and then, and their body will rise from the dead. My favorite kind of funerals are the ones who acknowledge God's purposes and intentions for the body. Now, don't get me wrong, if a body is burned, this happens sometimes tragically in a fire, even in through, through cremation, God's power is not limited. He will reassemble in His way as He sees fit, according to His mysterious plan, every last molecule or atom, or however He does it. But notice, the faith of abraham i'm sorry the faith of jacob the faith of joseph in hebrews 11 is demonstrated in their instructions for their own bones joseph did enter the promised land his bones passed through with the people of god through the red sea into the promised land now this makes no sense unless he believed in resurrection moses jacob joseph in their lifetime never attained the promised land However, in the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe, Matthew chapter 17, you'll see something amazing. There are resurrected, with with Jesus there, there are the resurrected figures of Elijah and Moses communing with their Savior. And what has happened as a result of being touched by the Messiah's power, they've been resurrected. And where is Moses standing? He's standing in the promised land. Moses entered the promised land after death. Joseph's bones were hauled there by the people of God. Jacob was relocated there after he died. But the Lord will bring his people who are in Christ into the promised land. The land uh, was a picture, a symbol of covenant reunion and the promises of glory and eternal life after death. When those who die in faith of God's resurrecting power are lifted from the grave, on that glorious day and then assemble in the new heavens and new earth the ultimate promised land. This is the ultimate of exile and exodus and promised land. I will bring you up again. Promise and faith of the the promises and the faith of the patriarchs presuppose a plan of God much bigger than their own life and experience. Joseph testifies to this in Hebrews 11:22 the destiny of his bones as he insisted they be carried into the promised land. Jacob Joseph, Moses, three examples of the faithful who died in Exodus, whose inheritance would be confirmed in God's yet future redemptive plans. Moses gloriously pictures this as we've said, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Christ. Jacob, Moses, Joseph, and if you are in Christ, you and me, believers today, will enter the glories of the promised land where fellowship and prosperity and worship Mark our forever existence. This is the glorious hope that Jacob's own story teaches us. Let me close with this application. Most discouragement arises from our assumption that a greater portion of heaven's promises should be experienced right now. Most of our discouragement arises from the implicit assumption that we should experience more of heaven's promises right now. You do not deserve or have any level of expectation this side of glory of, I think it's reasonable that I experience this much of heaven's promises, this much prosperity, this much happiness, this much peace, this much answer to my most important prayers. Jacob might have doubted and despaired on the way. What? I'm leaving the promised land. I'm 130 years old. I barely have strength for this journey. How in the world can these promises be fulfilled? How can your promise of bringing me up again from Egypt possibly be true if you're leading me to this foreign country to die? The answer is in that Emmanuel principle or promise. I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. God in Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. And that promise, that assurance is stronger than exile. It's stronger than famine. It's stronger than sickness. It's stronger than sorrow. It's stronger than calamity. It's stronger than temporal judgment. It's stronger than any difficulty we may face. And in the final analysis, it is stronger than death. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you that the message of hope in Jesus Christ is ours if we know you. Lord, if there are those in the hearing of this message who have never beheld you, I pray that at the well of your provision, they would have their own Beersheba experience, if you will, that they would have their own Beer Laharoi, the living God who sees me, who has made an oath and a covenant by supplying the sacrifice for my own sin, will supply for me water and provision in the wilderness of sin unto eternal life that will never run dry. Lord, for those of us who have experienced these moments in our life, being saved and assured of our covenant relationship with you, I pray that you would use this message to return us to that altar moment in our own lives and through the course of the legacy of the faithful through Scripture to give us strength for the journey at hand, wherever our own exile or exodus finds us, that we might be faithfully serving you and looking to you, the author and finisher of all things, and the one who is stronger than death.